Well, this morning as we begin uh, our sermon series, Phaseology, Three Movements on the Holy Spirit, I just want to make a couple of comments working towards an overall picture or goal of what we're trying to accomplish these next several weeks. Before anything else, we must recognize that the Holy Spirit, being God, touches upon every aspect of the Christian faith. The Holy Spirit is found everywhere in Scripture, and the Holy Spirit is absolutely vital to the life of a believer. And so this sermon series, Phaseology, Three Movements on the Holy Spirit, this series is going to be very far-reaching. It will necessarily bring in a whole lot of stuff. We will have to talk about the nature and being of God. We will talk about Jesus and his work. We will discuss man's being and purpose. We will talk about the church and the church's worship and purpose. And we will talk even about the end of history because the Holy Spirit is involved in every aspect of that. And I recognize that due to the nature of the topic, as, as hard as we may try, as much work as we'll put into it, I recognize that we will really only begin to scratch the surface of biblical revelation about who the Holy Spirit is and about what the Holy Spirit does. We may think that we know a lot about the Holy Spirit, and some of us do know a lot about the Holy Spirit. We must realize, of course, that none of us know all that there is to know simply because the Holy Spirit is infinite. He's God. And I recognize that over the next several weeks, I'm going to say half as much as many of you desire, while simultaneously saying twice as much as some of you want, all the while saying not nearly enough that there is to say. I know. It takes talent to be that inept. So my goal for this series is for us as a church really to grow in our love and knowledge of the triune God. A goal for this series is for us as a church and as individuals within the church to recognize more and more the greatness and the glory, the majesty of who God is, and in recognizing who God is, that we have a better understanding of who we are, recipients of this God's grace in Jesus Christ. You see, it. I believe, and I think Scripture is clear, that it is only first by knowing God that we can truly know ourselves. And so at the very beginning of the series, we need to be very clear about something. The Holy Spirit and His work are bound up with the being and the work of the Father and the Son. It's extremely important for us to keep in mind this thought, to keep this thought ever before us, this thought that the work of the Holy Spirit is God-centered. And more to the point, that the work of the Holy Spirit is Christ-centered, not man-centered. These words of R.A. Torrey is a 19th century American pastor and theologian. They serve as a good reminder to us about just where and what reality is. He says this, The conception of the Holy Spirit as a divine influence or power that we are somehow to get hold of and use leads to self-exaltation and self-sufficiency. 
But if we grasp the thought that the Holy Spirit is a divine person of infinite majesty, glory, and holiness and power, who in marvelous condescension has come into our hearts to make his abode there and take possession of our lives and make use of them, it will put us in the dust and keep us in the dust. Recipients of God's grace, we are in the dust, and we need to keep that in mind ever before us. And now on to phaseology, movement one, part one, the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian person. Here we'll discuss this big idea. The Holy Spirit is the divine third person of the Trinity. When we speak of the Trinity, we are speaking of the foundation of all reality. When we speak of the Trinity, we are speaking of capital T, truth. Because we are speaking of one who exists at the highest level of being. We are speaking of one who exists in and of himself. We are speaking of one who is infinite, who is majestic, and who is glorious. When we speak of the Trinity, we are speaking of one God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our Anglican tradition begins its 39 articles of religion with a statement on the nature and being of God by stating, there is but one living and true God, everlasting without body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker, the preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons, of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. This is the traditional Orthodox Christian belief. It's traditional, it's Orthodox, it's Christian because it summarizes what Scripture reveals. Scripture being God's spoken word, God's written word through which he reveals primarily himself and his actions within creation. The doctrine of the Trinity, yes, it can be sometimes very difficult for us to wrap our arms around. It can be difficult for us to understand. But the doctrine of the Trinity is everywhere evident in the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And so, yeah, we, we struggle to understand and we believe. And we believe so we struggle to understand because it is biblical. When it comes to thinking through and understanding the Trinity, the very nature and being of God, we touch upon the infinite because we're touching upon who God is. In his book, The Deep Things of God, a book that I enthusiastically endorse, I've even put it, put it into the, the bulletin uh, for suggested resources, this book, The Deep Things of God, written by a man named Fred Sanders, who's a a pastor and a theologian in Southern California, highly recommend it to everyone. He says this about the Trinity. God is eternally Trinity because triunity belongs to his very nature. Trinity is, Fred Sanders writes, who God is. And without being Trinity, he would not be God. God minus creation would still be God. But God minus Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would not be God. 
So when we praise God for being our creator and redeemer, we're praising him for what he does. But behind what God does is the greater glory of who he is, Trinity. So the very foundational elements here, we're talking about the foundational elements of all of reality. There is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who work in perfect union, who work in perfect unity for the creation of all that is, and who work in perfect union and unity for recreation. The fullness of God was active in the creation of the cosmos. We heard Doug read this morning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of waters. And just as explicitly we hear the beginning phrases of the book of John, in the beginning was the Word, and John tells us in the gospel, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so God's self-revelation, his Bible is very clear. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect union and unity created. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in like manner, in the fullness of the Trinity, is active for the work of recreation. As we read in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Trinity is robustly active and present in and through the ministry of Jesus the incarnation of the Son. St. Paul, writing in Ephesians, states there's one body and one spirit. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We have to understand as people of the Word, we have to understand as Christians that the center of the story of redemption is found in two sendings. The Father sending the Son and the Spirit involved in the Son's ministry, and the Father sending the Spirit through the Son after His ascension. So then, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, you are a Trinitarian theologian. Anybody ever want to refer to themselves as a Trinitarian theologian? <laughs> yeah, sure, sounds good. You are one. If you believe in Jesus... You are a Trinitarian theologian, and even more than that, if you believe in Jesus, you are brought into the very life of the Trinity itself. The Trinity is, if we can put it so bluntly, the good news. The Trinity is the gospel, precisely because there is no good news, there is no gospel if there is no Trinity. Preaching in 1855, renowned pastor Charles Spurgeon put it this way, a gospel without the Trinity, it is a pyramid built upon its apex. That means it's a pyramid turned upside down, built on its point, not on its foundation. How's that going to work out for you? Not well. He goes on to say, Spurgeon does, a gospel without the Trinity, it is a rope of sand that cannot hold together. A gospel without the Trinity, then, indeed, Satan can overturn it. But give me a gospel with the Trinity, and the might of hell cannot prevail against it. No man can any more overthrow it than a bubble could split a rock or a feather break in halves a mountain. This is why we must, as hard as it may be to intellectually grasp, this is why we must have the Trinity in us. This concept because it is the very foundation, not just of reality of creation, but it is the foundation of recreation, of salvation, of gospel. 
And so we begin this sermon series on the Holy Spirit with the biblical, traditional, orthodox statement of the Trinity. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, infinite. And in the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And this is the next point that we step to today. Important for us to take this concept of Trinity and now consider the Spirit as person. And perhaps it is that this is the place in our Trinitarian theology. Perhaps it is that this is the place in our trying to grasp and understand the fullness of God. Perhaps this is the place where we struggle and stumble a little bit. The, a person that we cannot see. We grasp and we get this idea of God the Father, more or less, because we know at least a picture of a father and what a father should be and ought to be and is, right? And we can grasp God the Son because of the incarnation of Jesus. We, we sing away in the manger and we, we know about the crucifixion and the resurrection, but it becomes difficult to picture the Spirit. Partly this is due to the very language we use and the misuse of the language that we use. For instance, in the Old English, uh, we talk about the Holy Ghost. And I don't know about you guys, but uh, when I think about a ghost, I usually think about Slimer from the original Ghostbusters. <laughs> Best case, when I think about ghost, I think about that bluish, glowing Obi-Wan Kenobi talking to Luke Skywalker in The Empire Strikes Back. But our use of spirit isn't that much better either. Think about the way we use the word spirit. We use spirit to discuss the excitement that one feels for one's favorite football team. Right? We're spirited. We use uh, spirit to discuss adult beverages with high alcohol content. We use spirit to talk about how well someone celebrates or observes Christmas. But those are just mere reflections. Those are empty reflections of what the spirit actually means. Let's let God define what spirit is. Here in Scripture, we have to get hold of this, that while we cannot see Him, the Holy Spirit is a divine person, just as the Father and the Son are divine persons. Returning to the 39 Articles, we read in Article 5, which I've printed out for you in the notes and quotes section of your bulletin, the Holy Ghost, proceeding from the Father and the Son, is of one substance, majesty, and glory, with the Father and the Son, very and eternal God. What we say about the Father can be said about the Son, can be said about the Spirit. They are co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent in the same manner. He is then as much a person as the Father. The Spirit is much a person as the Son. But what does that even mean? A 6th century Roman philosopher defined a person leaning heavily on that person or that being's ability to think and to act. So if someone or something can think and act rationally, that is with good sense, that's a person. Okay, that helps us. In more recent times, the ability to enter into relationship with one another has largely defined a person. The fact that I can enter into a relationship with Steve Perticaro says, some, says far more about Steve Perticaro than it does about me. <laughs> so when we say that the Holy Spirit is a divine person, we are saying that he is of God's substance and can think and interact rationally, that he enters into relationships with others. This is really important for us. 
In the first place, the Holy Spirit, as we've seen, is in perfect union of relationship with the mat- within the matrix of the Trinity. He's the same level as the Father and the Son. But second, we can say that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. When we say this, we say that he enters into that which he created. He is active within time and history. He comes into direct relationship with that which he's created, including and even humanity. So when we say that we have this divine person who is part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit speaks, he acts, he creates, he recreates, he has will, he has knowledge, he has actions, he is worshipped, he is welcomed, he is rejected, he is grieved, all within Scripture. And I emphasize this today, both the Trinitarian aspect of the, 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 the deity of, of the Spirit and this personhood, personality of the Spirit, I emphasize this today because, as J.I. Packer once wrote, you cannot understand the Spirit's ministry till you have grasped the fact of his personhood. And the reason why I make a big deal out of this is because if we aren't formed by Scripture in our understanding, we'll be formed by something else in our understanding. And if we aren't formed by the Scripture's revelation of the Holy Spirit being part of the Trinity, co-eternal, co-equal, co-existent with the Father and the Son, And if our thinking is not formed by the Scripture's revelation of the Spirit being a person, then quite frankly, the best that we will be able to do is fall into a Star Wars theology. When Obi-Wan Kenobi first defined the Force to Luke Skywalker, he said, The Force is what gives a Jedi his power. It is an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. The force in the Star Wars mythology is an impersonal force that can be harnessed by a gifted user for his or her own purposes. Like the magic of the universe of Harry Potter, the force is a tool to be manipulated and used for the adept's own purposes. And there are attempts found in Scripture, in the book of Acts, where at least one person by the name of Simon Magus attempts to purchase the Holy Spirit. Why? For his own use. Spoiler alert, it doesn't end well for him. I'm making this a big deal. I'm trying to draw this point out because we have to recognize that the Holy Spirit in being a personal being is not for us to manipulate or control. He doesn't go and come. He doesn't work at, the, at our whims and our desires. No, the center of the Holy Spirit's being in existence is not humanity. It's not the created order. It is the fellowship of the Trinity. And as such, the goal of the Spirit's personal work within the created order is not the deification of humanity. It is not the exaltation and glorification of man at all. It is for the glorification of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so even when the Spirit, this very personal Spirit, comes and does good work in the life of a believer, it's according to the purposes and plans of God, for the glory of God. Yes, for the good of the person, but ultimately for the glory of God himself. And far too often, we fall into this idea that I can harness the Holy Spirit. Folks, we must, if we're honest, praise the Lord that the Holy Spirit is a personal being who comes to work out God's plans and purposes. You know why? Because if the Holy Spirit was an impersonal force and power at my disposal so that I can use for the fulfillment of my glory and my desire, 
I'm Lord Voldemort. I'm Darth Vader. I'm Emperor Palpatine. I do all the nasty and evil stuff. And before you look at me with judgment in your eyes, all of you are the same. I shudder to think of those results if the Holy Spirit is simply impersonal. The Holy Spirit, as one of the three persons of the Trinity, is divine and not subject to our whims and our wills. The Holy Spirit comes to do the work of God and the life of a believer in Jesus for God's glory. And he does come. This is where we should be humbled and brought to our knees in worship. Here is where, at the very least, the truth should elicit some response because this Holy Spirit, the divine third person of the Trinity, is the gift of Jesus. Here again, these words that Father Ethan read from St. John's Gospel. Jesus speaking on the night before his death upon the cross, he, he says this in John chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And as John unfolds in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, his ongoing conversation between Jesus and his disciples, Jesus repeatedly comes back to the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you in the power and the presence of this gift, the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity. Not an impersonal force, but a very personal being. Relationship and interconnection. And Jesus' promise to the disciples was fulfilled within time and history on the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. There we read that the Holy Spirit entered into the lives of the 120 men and women who believed in Jesus, fulfillment of Jesus' promise. But the promise fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 is not the promise ended. We must hear this today. The promise fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, is not the promise ended. St. Peter publicly declares near the end of his Pentecost Day sermon, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he adds this, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's you and me. The promised presence of the divine third person, then, is for all who believe in Jesus. It's Jesus' good gift. It is the promise of Jesus for all who would believe in him, all who would be called to God himself down through the ages. And this means you, and this means me, this means our children, this means those whom we know and love who do not yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior. This means those who have not even yet been born. We need to get this deeply into our minds of faith, our hearts, the core of our being. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the gift of the very presence of God as it is the gift of the personal presence of the divine third person of the Trinity. When the Father gives the Spirit through the Son, He is giving out of the Trinity the foundation of all reality. He is giving the eternal, self-existent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present spirit. My, what a gift that is. Yeah. 
What kindness is this that we find in Scripture? What grace is this? What condescension that the infinite and eternal would enter into creation for the purpose of salvation? Are we not moved by this? And having begun to grasp the greatness of this grace, how do we dare do anything other than give back to Father, Son, and Spirit joyful praise and thanksgiving for their self-giving love? No wonder then that in ages past, in the present, and in ages to come, even unto eternity, the lips of God's people will proclaim, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was at the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. So we conclude this morning, this first part of our first movement in phaseology. We come back to very foundational ideas about the Holy Spirit, Trinity, and personhood. We come back to this idea of gift. May we be a people of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit. The question is, are you walking in the Spirit, as St. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5? Are you walking in the power and the presence of the personal third person? Or are we trying to muddle about in our own way? This morning, I want to invite you to respond, to respond to the giving and ascending of the Trinity. The Father sending the Son, the Father sending the Son through the Spirit. This morning, we're going to turn to the Lord and sing praises to Him, offering Him words of acclamation and song. While we worship, while we worship this morning, Tommy Taylor and Ethan, Father Ethan, are going to be over here this morning, and willing, ready, and able to offer prayers for you, to walk in the Spirit. Jeff Cressy and I will be over here, willing and able to offer those same prayers. If God is moving in you to respond to this, do not wait. Today is the day. Every day is the day. May we be a people of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. May we know the Holy Spirit as He is revealed in Scripture, the divine third person of the Trinity. He is the gift of Jesus, and He comes for the good of those who believe, ultimately for the glory of God. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Holy Father, send your Spirit through the Son. Come upon us. We are ready now. As we offer you our worship, come and be exalted, glorified, high, and lifted up. We are ready now. Do what you will among us. Come and be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let us stand together and offer worship through song to our...